Good morning, everybody. Uh, happy Sunday. Uh, my name is Alan, if I've not met you before. Um, I am uh, the, the, the pastor for the college students uh, for Stepping Stone, which is at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, just as a brief intro for me, I graduated from Hopkins uh, 2014, and uh, I've been serving as a, uh, as a pastor since 2017. Um, so that's a little bit about who I am. Um, we are currently in a um, series on the book of Zechariah. Um, so you guys know it's uh, we've been titling it the gospel in Zechariah and that's been our series so far um, today's message in Zechariah 6 um, called it the a portrait of the king a portrait of the king um, I was listening to a Matt Chandler sermon the other day um, I do a lot of driving so I, I go back and forth to my house and Hopkins which is about 30 minutes a lot of traffic and I just sometimes I just listen to some sermons just so I can hear somebody else talk about Jesus, which is nice. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then it was, <clears throat> I was listening to this sermon, you know, and Matt Chandler was just talking about this. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Matt Chandler. He's a very famous pastor in Dallas. And uh, he's talking about how he's currently, he's currently in seminary for some reason. And how he went to this, you know, this, um, the biblical lands to do a tour with his class. And, you know, and they're in Greece and they're in Athens. And I've always, I've always wanted to do this, you know. And he's like sitting on Mars Hill, which is this like famous hill where Paul gave this famous sermon to the Greeks, you know, um, that kind of told them about, you know, this, this unknown God that you worship, you know, this is Jesus Christ. And, and so there's this like famous, very historical location. They're just sitting on, you know, sitting there and meditating and just, you know, doing all this thing. And he tells a story about how one of his classmates actually, you know, um, just felt like in his heart, this desire to want to just share the gospel with somebody else who had been, who was there. And it turns out he was a, uh, he was a secular Muslim from Tunisia. And, you know, he just felt the heart to just want to just somehow talk to him. He didn't know how, you know, and through some kind of extraordinary incidents where uh, he actually was like, hey, you left like a gum wrapper or something like that. So they began talking and you know, and, and then and then this um, secular Muslim from Tunisia, he was talking about how, yeah, I come up here regularly, like three times a week to just ponder like the meaning of life, um, you know, just, just kind of just to get away from it all and just think about like, what is what is everything about, you know, and so he was this man who was searching clearly for deep meaning. I mean, he didn't know what he was searching for, but he was he was searching. <clears throat> and so, of course, that that friend, you know, that the classmate of, of his um he gets a chance to just tell them about Jesus and, and this person. This he tells them that yeah, um, the meaning of life is about Jesus. This man, full of grace and truth, you know, who came to this world to show what life is really about. And they end up having this great conversation. And it turns out this man even has a backstory. How you know he had read the Bible before because some guy in Egypt had like driven two hundred kilometers to give him a Bible at that time. Um, and he so he had read through some things and he was familiar, but he had not you know come to know Jesus personally. And through this whole like very dramatic encounter, you know, they're, they're talking in a coffee shop somewhere and, and then and this man eventually comes to belief and put his faith personally in Jesus Christ. Um, he moves from just this place of just thinking philosophically, you know, about the world and what everything is about to knowing the savior, knowing the creator of the universe, um, the one who made everything to be. And it's, it's just an incredible story. And I remember as I was just listening to it, I was just like weeping, uh, like on I-95, you know, like trying to, you know, wipe away the tears so I could not crash into, you know, someone in, it was just out of the blue, you know, and it just, I think it reminded me so much about why people become Christian. 
it's not because they get convinced, you know, not, not usually from, a, you know, oh, that this is the, you know, that of some sort of philosophical viewpoint or they, or they get, you know, convinced on this or that. At the end of the day, you know, that might be part of it. I think why people come to Jesus is because they have a personal encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And without all that, it's just a belief system. You know, it's just facts. It's just things to talk about. But what makes it special and what happened to me and what happened to probably a lot of you guys is that at some point in your life that you came to know Jesus Christ as a person. You came to experience who he was and he made a difference in your life. And that's why you said yes to this whole crazy thing, right? Because why else would we be doing all this stuff where we wake up at 9 a.m. in the morning or whatever and come to church and do all this? Like, what is the point of all this? You know, it's because we came to know about Jesus Christ and we love him, right? We love him. And, and that's kind of the heart behind this message today. We're going to go through a lot of theological digging. It's going to be a lot of Bible passages. It's going to be a lot of things. And, and it's going to be tempting just to look at it as just facts and just stuff and just things. And, and just to see it as kind of distant from us. Um, but I think the heart behind all of this, what I'm hoping to do, is to paint us a portrait of who Jesus is. Um, that knowledge is useful because knowledge leads us to love Jesus more. And the purpose of it all isn't just so that we can recite all these facts and be like, Zechariah 6, 9 through 15 is about this prophecy and about that, but so that we can have a different angle and different idea, a portrait of seeing who Jesus is. And that's what I want to do here today. That's what I hope uh, we're going to be able to do. Um, I want to just invite you to just pray with me that that would happen for us, that we would come to love Jesus more as a result of studying this passage. Lord Jesus, Lord, we just want to know you more. Lord, would you help us, even as you opened up the scriptures to those two people on the way to Emmaus, would you help us to just help our hearts to just burn, God? And we see and we learn about who you are. God, I just, we don't need more of just information about you that rings dead, that has no weight, that doesn't affect our lives. Lord, we want to know who you are. Would you help us today, God, that as we just dig into this passage, Lord, that would you, would you help your God-breathed passage to just breathe life into our souls, to breathe knowledge and love and joy about Jesus Christ into our hearts. I pray for all of us who are weary and tired, who have just been blown around by storms, as we just sang about earlier. I pray that, God, that you would meet us here today and refresh us, Lord. We need that so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we are in the book of Zechariah. Um, and just to kind of review briefly, it's been kind of a wild ride. <laughs> I've been covering a lot of these sermons. I'm just like blown away by what's going on here. 
Uh, but just kind of a little bit of context, again, review of what we've been doing. So we've been covering the visions of Zechariah in the first six chapters. And we talk about how they collectively come together to sort of portray, um, to encourage um, Israel, which is very broken and disheartened at this point. They're returning from exile into a land that is like, you know, they just, you know, temples destroyed, there's rubble everywhere, you know, there's, there's political enemies all around, and they are broken and disheartened. In the book of Zechariah, we talked about how it was this book of encouragement. These visions are meant to encourage the people of Israel returning that God is going to restore Israel, right? That God is going to restore Jerusalem. And he's going to make it once again this place where it should be, you know, this shining jewel of a city that it ought to be. And how he's going to vindicate Jerusalem, you know, against all their enemies. And we talked about the idea of retributive justice, um, how God actually is going to, you know, hold accountable all those you know, all the evil oppressors and the empires that have done what they've, you know, committed against um, Jerusalem. And so that's kind of the picture we have. We have a picture of the horses, if you remember, is a reminder of God's sovereignty that he knows that he cares, he understands what's going on. And, you know, a picture of Jerusalem that, he, that he's, he's going to bring about this, you know, he's going to um, restore Jerusalem to what it's supposed to be. And so, and here we arrive in Zechariah 6, and this is Kind of what some people have turned like a bonus vision on top of the sort of last few night visions that we've talked about. Uh, so this is kind of like an extra vision. It's not really included in these visions and these night visions. Um, and it has a kind of a different sort of purpose or meaning, a rather mysterious one at first, if you're like an original reader. You're kind of like, what is this really about? So let's read it real quick. Zechariah 6. Um, the word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jazadak. These names are difficult, right? Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Can you guys hear me okay as I'm turning to read? Unfortunately, the TV up front is not working, so I have to do that. Okay. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. And so if you guys, I don't know if you have your Bibles, you want to kind of, you know, open that up so you can kind of follow through of what that looks like. That's the kind of passage we're going to be looking at today. And so, you know, just some context uh, going back again, you know, they're trying to build this temple. So the, the temple has been destroyed and they're in the process of rebuilding this temple again. And they need encouragement because it's a hard, arduous task. There's a lot of obstacles along the way. And so on the surface, this is just another vision to encourage them to continue building, that they're going to be able to build it, that it's going to be able to be complete, right? But in the midst of this vision, there is this striking prophecy uh, that seems to be about Joshua, right? So, you know, here he's, the, uh, the prophet Zechariah is commanded to go and, you know, take some gold from these exiles and go fashion a crown. I don't know what kind of crown, 
but he's supposed to take this crown and he's supposed to go and put it on um, this man named Joshua. And he makes this grand kind of like prophecy about who Joshua is supposed to be. And so here are some of the things that he talks about. He's, he's a man whose name is the branch. Now, this is another theologically weighty term, and we're going to dive in through all this stuff, so it's going to be a lot of scripture, but, you know, it's really important that we have the context and we kind of understand some of these things. Here's a man whose name is the branch, and the branch is like a very important kind of word throughout the Old Testament that has a very specific kind of reference to a person, um, and we see that in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Isaiah, here's one of the first times it's mentioned, it says, a branch, a shoot, similar word to the branch will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So this is one of the first few times you kind of see this, and you see this kind of reference that the branch is referring to some descendant of David. Jesse is the, the father of David. So it's just kind of this idea of this root of Jesse. There's going to be this, this shoot that's going to spring up from the line of Jesse, and he's going to be doing a bunch of stuff, right? What are the stuff he's going to do? Well, it says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is going to be a man very spiritual, full of the power and the understanding and the knowledge of God. Continues on, it says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy, and with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the stash around his waist. This is a very lofty kind of claims about, supposedly about this man Joshua. He's going to be this, you know, wise sort of person that's you know, this just and this, you know, at this point, strike the earth with the rod of the mouth. This is some intense language, right? And then again, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nation will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. I'm giving myself away a little bit. We're going to get to there, but clearly you can see, hmm, this sounds like it's talking about another person, right? This sounds kind of familiar about some other things. The nations will rally to him. You know, people who aren't Jewish, people, people who are perhaps Asian will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. <clears throat> the root of Jesse, right? So there's this kind of idea of this branch, um, this that the thing that shoots out from Jesse, from David's line. In Jeremiah, it says, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Here again is the phrase, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. So you have all this like really rich language about this king who's going to come. He's going to be just. He's going to be wise. He's going to be filled with the spirits. Um, and the result of his rule, this is where it gets even a little bit crazier, um, where you're starting to feel like, hey, maybe this is not talking about Joshua anymore. Uh, the result of this rule, this is back in Isaiah 11, he says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. Well, now this is just straight up supernatural at this point. <laughs> I don't know what kind of king can make a wolf lie down with the lamb where they're not eating each other. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The lion will be a vegetarian now because it's not harming anybody else. <laughs> The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain for the earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so it just, it just starts getting more and more dramatic to the point where it's just sort of like, there's this like supernatural peace on earth such that even the animals are not even killing each other. And so that's the result of what this branch of Jesse, this, this branch of David is gonna be like. Um, continuing on, here's this man whose name is the branch. He will branch out from his place and he will build the temple of the Lord. Here's another phrase that describes kind of what this king will do. And it, again, has a lot of significance that isn't just sort of like, he's going to build a house. That's nice. Um, he will build the temple. Um, this kind of gives this kind of image of perhaps the greatest king of Israel, whose name was Solomon. Um, uh, Solomon was, ruled, was king over Israel during the time when it was probably the most prosperous, um, when it was probably the closest to looking like what Israel should have looked like. This kind of prosperous nations were where you know, kings from all kinds of different places in the world were coming in and inquiring and, being, and trying to, and, and through that, coming to know God. And so Solomon is this kind of idea they think of this wise and rich king. And he built this grand temple. And the idea behind this of the king building this temple is the idea that the king is supposed to be the one in charge of bringing right worship to the people. He brings the people to worship rightly you know, he, he, he brings the nation at peace so that it's in good relationship with God. And the idea of a temple is literally this physical image that God dwells among you, right? It's literally like God is your neighbor, you know, if you think about it. For people who have struggled with abstract thinking that God is here, it's like, well, look, we have a house over there and, you know, the glory cloud is there. So we know God is there. <laughs> and so there's kind of this physical symbol of the literal presence of God, and that's what kings are supposed to do. They're supposed to build a temple. They're supposed to, you know, allow for that, facilitate for that, for God's presence to be there and for rightful worship to be happening. So he will build a temple that's supposed to happen. And finally, he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. This seems like pretty kind of basic language about a king, but, you know, the word majesty here is more than just, you know, just, oh, he's wearing some nice clothing, you know, and it's pretty swell. You know, the word for majesty is oftentimes, it's, 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 in, it's the common word in the Old Testament that's um, used to describe the majesty of God. And it's often used to describe this sort of glory or this honor that God has. And so he will be clothed with majesty. It evokes these ideas, you know, of the grandeur of God, um, who I would think his majesty is best displayed in nature and, you know, in these valleys and these hills that make us feel a sense of reverence and awe. You know, that's what he means by he will be clothed with majesty. This is not going to be some kind of dinky little small king of some town here. This is going to be some guy that before him, you're going to feel the sense of just wow. You know, the sense of just wanting to get on your knees. You know, he will rule on this throne. So this is what the Jewish people had in mind when they heard the word, the branch. And, you know, and when, when this prophecy is kind of being talked about with Joshua, this is, you know, this is what they're thinking about. But the problem here is that, is it really talking about Joshua? Um, yes, it says, take the silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jazadak. There are some problems. There's something very unusual about this image that Joshua is this person chosen to sort of like bear this sort of weighty title of all what a messiah means well there's several reasons 
The first is that Joshua is a priest, and priests are not kings. Um, that's not how it works in Israel. They're completely separate offices. They have completely different roles, and there's never a precedent of, um, well, there might be one, but I'll talk about it later. There's almost not a precedent at all of a priest and a king being the same thing at all. So there's complete offices, you know, just to kind of give a modern equivalent, it would be sort of like a Supreme Court justice was not, was sworn in as president of the United States. And you're just sort of like, those, you know, those are different branches, you know, you learn about this in U.S. history class or whatever, you know, that's the, that's the judicial branch and that's the executive branch. And, you know, the whole point of the U.S. system is you don't, you know, you don't cross those things so that, you know, nobody has too much power. You know, so you're never going to see a Supreme Court justice who's president at the same time. That's the same kind of idea here. You don't have a priest who's the king at the same time. And not only that, but it's actually physically impossible. It was considered physically impossible for the priest to be the literal Messiah. And here's why, because there's issue of bloodlines. This is, I know we're going to get a little technical, but this is kind of the heart of this passage here. This is why it's so astounding to the, the Jewish person who knew what was going on. The problem is that the high priest is supposed to descend from Aaron, and Aaron comes from Levi. The king, the messianic king, is the root of Jesse, or the root of David, and he comes from Judah. And Levi and Judah are completely different tribes. <laughs> they both come from Israel, yes, but they're completely different tribes. And so you have a problem, because that's why they're never the same person, because they're completely two different bloodlines, two different clans. <clears throat> and so it's weird. It's like really weird that Joshua, this, this priest, is the one who's bearing now this title of the Messianic king. It's very odd. And on top of that, there's actually like a more suitable candidate that they could have easily chosen that would have been a better choice. It wasn't just like, well, Joshua's our only guy, you know, and he's the only guy that's, you know, kind of got a leadership position here. So we got to choose him, you know, that was not the case at all. There was another man who strangely is absent from this passage, and his name was Zerubbabel. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of his name before, but uh, he's kind of more, he's also a, a fairly obscure figure, at least. Um, his name is Zerubbabel, and he and Joshua were these like two main leaders at the time. And while Joshua was the high priest, Zerubbabel was the actual governor. So he was like the most king-like figure at the time. And on top of that, Zerubbabel actually descended from David. So he was from the right tribe. And so there's a big question that you read in this passage, why would you not choose Zerubbabel? Um, he's the sort of person that would make sense. On top of that, again, uh, Zerubbabel is mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah, he's, he's, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So literally two chapters ago, it's talking about Zerubbabel being the man who's going to build the temple. Haggai, which is another contemporary prophet, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. And that's very messianic language again. So it's confusing, right? If you're a Jewish person and you're reading this text, you're like, what? Like that, you know, if you just change the word Joshua for Zerubbabel, it would make a lot of sense. But I think it's intentional here. I think it's very intentional. And I think there's actually something really cool about this that points towards Jesus. Um, that even 400, 500 years before Jesus was came onto the scene, it provided a precedence um, for this idea of the priest and the king being the same person who I, we find actually fulfilled in Jesus. And we find, and we find confirmation of this in the fact that neither Joshua or Zerubbabel ever lived up to any of these things. You know, they vanish in history, 
they're not these great kings. I mean, I don't, you know, Joshua's not this man that becomes this, you know, messianic king. And so I think we find in this a mysterious kind of future prophecy about Jesus, about uh, this, this one who was to come, who would be both priest and king. And we see that, I don't know, some of you guys who are astute and, and know some Hebrew, uh, we see that even in the illusion of the name itself. The name Joshua, which is Hebrew, is Yeshua, is actually the same name as Jesus. Um, it's interesting because Jesus is just the Greek form of the name. And so in some ways you could read it as, you know, when it's talking about this Yeshua, this Joshua, you know, it's talking about a 500 years later Yeshua and Joshua. So there's some really cool aspects of that prophecy. I think that points to the fact that this is about something perhaps a little bit more than this man at this time, but it's about Jesus. So I wanna, that's what I want to talk about today, um, is Christ as priest and king. I've described this as kind of a portrait of who Jesus is. I kind of, that's how I began it. And the purpose of all this theological stuff, thanks for sitting with me through all that stuff, there's more to come, <laughs> is so that we can deepen our understanding of who Jesus is, that he is priest and king, and that these things talk about him as who he is. How is Jesus priest? Well, sorry, again, we're going to get into a little bit more. Um, this is some rich stuff, and, you know, I hope it helps you, you know, when you read through the Bible yourself and you read through these hard texts, like in Hebrews, and you're like, what the heck are they talking about here? You know, this is what they're talking about. You know, in Hebrews, there's this whole like dialogue about this man named Melchizedek. And you're like, why on earth are they talking about that? Well, it's an answer to this question of how Jesus could be both priest and king at the same time. Um, like we said, there is the bloodlines issues. You know, how could he descend from both? Well, the author of Hebrews explains it this way. He says that there's more to being a priesthood than just being born in the line of the priesthood. And he says, yes, Jesus was not a priest in the line of the Levites and Aaron. He wasn't because he wasn't born that. Yep, we agree with that. But he says there's a more older priesthood. There's a more respected, venerable priesthood that's even greater than Aaron's priesthood. And that's of this guy named Mel Melchizedek, uh, who's this man from Genesis, actually, this mysterious kind of guy. Melchizedek is this man who actually meets Abraham, and Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And so there's kind of like this little priestly relationship between the two. And Melchizedek is known as the priest of God. He's described that way in that passage. And what Jesus, and, and what he, the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is of that priesthood. It's a better priesthood. Um, what qualifies you to be a priesthood? It's not like you can just say that you are. Well, he says here, this becomes even more evident when another priest arrives in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning, concerning bodily descent, right? not because he descended from Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I just find that really cool. <laughs> by the power of indestructible life. That's what qualifies me to be the priest. Not because my dad, my your grandfather was somebody, you know, but because um, Jesus was so righteous and so holy and that when he was crucified, he was resurrected. Um, that is the proof of Jesus' priesthood, indestructible life. I find that amazing. And that, that's kind of how Hebrews goes back and, and says, that's why Jesus is priest. Um, because of the power of indestructible life. And he goes on to say, this is a better priesthood than Aaron's. You know, so this is way better. Why? Compares a little bit. 
the Aaron priesthood. Um, so he's saying such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. What a boss, right? That is who Jesus is. He, you know, he doesn't need to stand there, you know, offering animal sacrifices over and over again. That's the, that's the Aaron priesthood, right? He gave himself up, you know, to be crucified as a one-time sacrifice. He was holy. He was completely righteous. He didn't need it. He did it for us. And in doing so, he did it once and for all. And now, you know, we have true kind of relationship with God. He's completely done that work that a priest is supposed to do. So Jesus is actually the better high priest coming from the line of Melchizedek. Jesus is an effective high priest. I think this is something we oftentimes look over. What is a high priest supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to mediate, you know, between these two different parties that are in conflict. And, you know, and there's conflict in some ways between God and man because of man's sin. And what Jesus is supposed to do, you know, high priest is supposed to do is supposed to atone for the sins of man. So he's acceptable before God. He's supposed to mediate this kind of relationship and, and make the relationship good, right? But you see the problem with the Aaron priesthood is that no matter how many sacrifices they offer, they couldn't make anybody clean. People were still sinful. People were still sinning. You know, people are still running away from God. They couldn't do anything to them. You know, they can only ritualistically declare that you were clean, but they couldn't actually change their hearts. Not so Jesus. We see all over in the Gospels, again and again, this picture of Jesus going around, healing people, clean, cleansing people, you know, going to the sick and the lame and the, you know, the unclean. And instead of like a high priest who's like, yeah, I can't touch you, man, because, you know, you might make me unclean. Jesus goes to the unclean and he says, I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to make you holy. Um, I'm going to actually, and he goes around, and he heals people and he, and he, and he, and he um, takes sinners and he makes them righteous. And he actually does the job of priests. He actually is effective. I think that's so amazing when we kind of look at sort of all how all these Old Testament prophecies point to you know, their fulfillment in Jesus. And finally, you know, this aspect of Jesus as our high priest. Um, he was a man like us. Hebrews, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And what does this mean for us as we consider, you know, how do we come to know Jesus? How do we know Jesus as our priest? You know, I love this phrase because it shows us that Jesus was like us. He was a man. He was fully understanding who we are, you know, but also he was righteous and able to mediate between us and God. I was talking to, a, you know, a friend um, earlier this week, you know, he was telling me about just this just tragic kind of situation in his family where his little brother literally has just gone like full on like prodigal son. You know, he's, you know, he's like completely cut himself off from his family. He like, you know, even like assaulted his like mom. Like it was, it was intense. Like it was, it was not like, you know, and, and he's just like completely like, they're not on talking grounds at all, you know? And, and this, this person I was talking to was, um, uh, you know, the older brother, you know, he's just ranting to me about just how horrible his little brother is. And he said, yeah, at one point, you know, I was a mediator. You know, at one point I feel like I couldn't understand him. At one point I was just, you know, I was also brother to him. You know, I, you know, I was like his friend, you know, and, 
you know, I, I, but I was also good with my parents too. And so I was playing this mediation role. But when he did that, you know, when he, you know, um, I, soul is a very strong word, um, but, you know, he did sort of, um, it was not pretty, right? He, um, I don't want to like go into the details, um, but when he kind of crossed that line, you know, he was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> like, I hate that guy. Like it's over, you know, and it makes sense, right? Like a lot of us kind of would react in a similar way. But I think about this, right, about Jesus as our mediation. And I think about how Jesus is kind of like in that way, our older brother. And I think about how we as younger brothers in that very same story have also just cut off ties with our God. You know, we've said, we've, you know, we've, you know, given the finger to God to some sense, and we've ran away from God, and we don't want anything to do with him. And we've cursed him and we've made fun of him as oftentimes as we do in this culture. And we've ignored him. And we've done everything we have as younger sons to disrespect, you know, our heavenly father in some ways. But I'm thankful that Jesus did not give up on us. And I'm thankful that Jesus was not like the older brother who, you know, he righteously could have just been like, yeah, you know, to heck with those guys. <laughs> like they deserve it. But he did not. And he, gave, and he came and he gave his own life for us. That is the idea of high priest. That he is with us, that he's empathetic of us. Yeah, that he's connected to God, but he's also connected to us. And I love that about who Jesus is. I love that about, that makes me love him more. Finally, Jesus as king, right? Jesus, not only priest, but he's king in this passage. You know, how does he fulfill that? Well, and I want to bore you with the genealogy, but this is why genealogies are there. In Matthew 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David. And it gives a very, very clear picture about how Jesus descends from David. So it's like, check, you know, Jesus indeed fulfills the line of Judah. But that one's actually a little harder to digest, I think, for a lot of us. Because when Jesus came in his earthly life, he didn't feel like a king in a lot of ways. He didn't really conquer. He didn't really throw on, you know, hung around with some people, you know, disciples some people, and he just went and died, you know. So a lot of, and a lot of Jewish people today reject Jesus as king because, he, you know, he didn't fit the bill in some kind of ways. So in what sense did Jesus fulfill the role as king? Well, when we think about the gospels again and again, how Jesus talks about his kingdom, he makes it clear, like, I'm not trying to set up shop in one of your lame bureaucratic offices. You know, I'm not trying to just be governor of Judah. You know what I mean? Like, I'd say, he's like, no, 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 no. You know what I mean? I'm not just trying to overthrow the Roman empire. Your view of me is far too small. You know, I'm not just trying to, you know, like get into your politics and sort of just, you know, you know, make, make things according to what you want it to be. No, my kingdom is not of this world. He's like, I'm the king of heaven, right? You know, and yeah, I have so much power, but I didn't come here to, to do that. I came here to die for you. I came here to teach you, to walk among you. You know, and so he says he's the king of heaven. And the way he teaches is the king of heaven. He's like, my way is king. Not about, you know, what you, you guys would think kings would be like. My ways in humility and gentleness and loving your enemies, which I'm going to demonstrate for you. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for there is the kingdom of heaven. It's complete reverse of what you would expect a king to be like. That's his kingdom. And after he was resurrected, after he died and resurrected, Jesus says, you know, came to them. He came to the disciples. And this is the famous passage of the Great Commission. It says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. I think a lot of times when we talk about the Great Commission, we miss, lose sight of that first part of the phrase. We're like, all right, you know, it's our job as Christians to go and make disciples and go and do our thing. But that's not the full context of this passage. He says, 
First of all, it's, a, it's actually a declaration of his kingship. All authority in heaven on earth has been just been given to me. After I resurrected, God handed everything to me. I'm in charge now, guys. I am king now. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, because I'm the reigning king, go and, you know, bring people into the kingdom. You know, go and tell people about me. Go and make disciples, you know, extend the boundaries of my kingdom on earth. And that's kind of the great commission, right? So Jesus is currently reigning right now, you know, as king. And finally, you know, scriptures talk about Jesus' triumphant return as king. Yeah, right now it doesn't seem like Jesus is king a lot. <laughs> there's still a lot of suffering. There's still a lot of justice, injustice. You know, there's, you know, even just this last, you know, a few weeks, we just had another string of shootings, right? And, and just, you know, gr just grief, right? Just things that, you know, make us numb. And we're just like, man, like how, how much more pain, you know, war is still going on in Ukraine. Horrible things are still happening. Um, still plenty of injustice, right? We don't see this wolf lying down with the lamb. We don't see this supernatural peace happening. Well, scripture is clear. Jesus is coming back, guys. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back again, it's not going to be like the first time. He's not going to be this, you know, at this gentle sort of medium. No, no. Jesus, when he comes back second time, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed with a rope, dripped in blood. And his name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is an intense passage. And it's to evoke military power, right? Everything the Jewish people had wanted the first time, Jesus is like, oh, it's coming. You know, it's coming. It's going to be intense. It's going to be epic. It's, it's, you know, it's not going to be a war. It's just going to be, you know, running the war. It's going to be God finally in one moment, just, you know, demonstrating to the world his absolute justice and his absolute power making right everything wrong you know holding accountable every evil sort of thing jesus coming i kind of think of this picture in the lord of the rings you know as aragon who clearly is the parable for jesus in that you know every time you watch you know it's so silly right but uh, you know get teary-eyed and all that and you you know see the the glorious kind of army just start charging in and you, you know it's just wiping them out and all that you know, and I, I do think the original author, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, had these kinds of scenes in mind when he kind of wrote about these, these epic scenes of battle when things would finally be put right. And that's what Revelations talks about. Jesus as triumphant king, he's going to come back and he's going to make it right. Um, and finally, man, um, not only Jesus as priest and king, um, but Jesus as priest and king together. That's what I love about this passage. I love how completely it captures the various aspects of who Jesus is. And he's not just the priest, but he doesn't have authority or power to rule. He's also not just the king who has authority and power to rule, but, you know, he doesn't really mediate with us. He doesn't really know us, things like that. He is the priest and the king together. How amazing it is that these two things come together, not just in these two different, like, good cop, bad cop kind of thing, but in this one person who is fully just, fully powerful, fully righteous, fully loving,
fully merciful. That is our God. That is Jesus, as we see in this passage. Um, and I hope, I don't know, I hope it all produces in us a desire to want to know Jesus more and to love him more. He truly is amazing, right? As we see in this passage. So how should we respond? We we'll just close with a few thoughts for us. <clears throat> First, let's approach boldly the throne of grace. In Hebrews, we looked at this passage earlier, but it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because we have a priest, because we have a friend, because we have somebody who understands us, who doesn't abandon us, who makes us right. Let us draw with confidence the throne of grace. I've a thought about analogy of like this, of just like being invited to the president to a presidential banquet, you know, and here you are, you're, you're a scrub <laughs> and, you're, and, you're, and you're in this like huge banquet hall full of like important people and you feel kind of out of place and you feel awkward, but the president's invited you, right? And so you go in and, you know, you're just trying to like, you know, middle your way around and the president comes and, you know, and, it's, and, and honors you in front of everybody. He says, hey, look at my buddy, look at my friend, look at this person I care about. And he honors you in front of everybody. That's the picture I think we have of Jesus, our high priest, who is the president at the same time. And he's also the one who comes in and allows us to approach with confidence the throne of grace. Let's rest in the security of our God, of our good and just King. You know, as he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I know there's suffering. I know there's hard things and there's things we can't often explain. Um, but when we look at this, when we look at all authority in heaven on earth, the route we never take is that God is not in control. It's tempting. We never go, you know, when even horrific things happen, we never go, well, maybe God's just distant somewhere. He, you know, he doesn't really know what's going on anymore. All authority in heaven on earth, every single molecule in this universe is governed by God and exactly where it wants it to be. And Jesus is in charge of it all. And you know what he says about us? He says, I'm working all things for your good and for my glory. All things for your good and my glory. Not saying we can appreciate that in the moment. Grief is hard, right? Not saying it's always easy to see that, but that is theological truth, right? That's true. No matter how we shape it or not, God is all authority over everything. Jesus has authority and he's our friend, right? I'm uh, reminded of this time when we went to Peru on a missions trip. And you know how we're just a bunch of Americans on this boat in the middle of the Amazon River. And we're just like, this is kind of like freaky, <laughs> like, you know. Um, but we had a guide, right? Of course we had a guide. Otherwise we would have died probably. Uh, we had a guide who was, you know, a pastor in the area. And he, you know, he had a reputation among the villages. And he was just well-known, respected, you know, he, he kind of had authority in the area, de facto uh, authority, right? And when around him, we just, we felt safe, right? We're like, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> like, like, he's got us, you know? Like, yeah, okay, I don't know what's going on right now, but it's cool. Like, he's got us, you know? That's kind of the sense I think that we should have, we should rest in security, knowing that the one in charge is good and just. And finally, let's, I think, obey and build a temple with our king. The passage of Zechariah ends in this way. It says, those who are far away will come and help, help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Those from far away will help to build the temple of the Lord. And there's this picture again that, you know, even as Jesus is the builder of the temple, as he's the builder of this kingdom, he has help, right? Not in a sense that he needs help, but he will use us 
right? Those who are far away will come and help. He uses people. He uses us. And, and once we become his, he sends us out. Again, he says, come join in the work that I am already doing, that I want you to be so greatly a part of. I think about, you know, my calling to ministry. And, um, you know, when, when I first in college encountered this, you know, I encountered this idea of Jesus King and this kingdom coming. And it's, it just redefined my whole purpose and for my life. At that point, I had very selfish, you know, purposes. And they're not necessarily wrong things, but, you know, it's just about me. Like, okay, I'm going to, you know, get a good job, you know, do the things I want to do, you know, and, you know, you know, make my life happy and comfortable. And it's pretty much how most people think. That's how we all think, right? But no, Jesus interrupts that when we come to know him. And that's how he interrupted for me and probably for you as well. He came and he gave you a different purpose. He says, no, no longer are you just going to live to try to get your white picket fence and that's it, right? I've got a kingdom I'm about to build. And he invites us. He says, do you want to be a part of that? You know, do you want to be used by me? Do you want to see Many, many people, just like that secular Muslim on, on you know, Mars Hill or wherever, do you want to see many, many people from all kinds of different nations come to know me, know Jesus as Lord and Savior? I think that's the privilege that we have as Christians, right? The privilege that we don't just live ordinary monotone lives. We're invited by the King to this incredible journey. And boy, I can tell you, there's so much joy. There's so much joy in being a part of that in seeing people who did not know him previously come to know him and rejoice in him and love him and treasure him. And that's my hope for us as a church. That's my hope for you guys as a church is that as we come to know Jesus as our priest and king, that our hope would be that we would want others to know him as well. That we'd go out and into our workplaces, into our friend groups, you know, and we would find the ones that, God is calling, not even us, that Jesus is calling to know him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I just, gosh, I just thank you so much, Lord, for this passage. For you, Lord. Lord, I just I thank you so much that you died for us, that you love us, you meet us where we're at, that you love us so much more than you love us too much to just allow us to live our lives just for ourselves and with no purpose or meaning to it. God, I thank you so much that you have so much more for us. That you are raising us as a church, as an international global church, the temple of God. To be this place where you are seen and you are known. Lord, I just pray that for ourselves, for our hearts. I pray for those of us here that perhaps don't know you or haven't seen you in a while, haven't really encountered you in a while. I just pray that you would revive that, God, that, that, that today, that this week, they would experience you. They would experience your love, your mercy, your grace.
your justice. Lord, that's my prayer for us today, that we would know you and that we would love you more. And I pray for us as we this week that, God, that you would give us our time to just dig into Scripture. We're so busy, Lord, and we're so distracted, God. But God, give us the time to just go and, and read your word and encounter you in it. pray that for every one of us here, for all of us, God, and even those who are not here that are part of our church. You bless us, Lord. Jesus, and we pray.